This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's another pivotal week for health care in this country. With failures to pass legislation in Congress, President Trump has suggested letting Obamacare, quote, implode. He could hasten that by stopping payments to insurance companies, payments that make coverage less expensive for the poor. Without the money, insurers might raise premiums or leave the market entirely. I asked Colorado's Democratic governor, John Hickenlooper, in our regular conversation, what it would mean for the state. That's a disastrous choice because it would force insurance companies and individuals into all kinds of difficult choices. We know that many of the insurance companies are struggling within the private markets just because of the uncertainty. There are 14 counties in Colorado that only have one insurer. Exactly. With that limited number of insurance companies, we need to do everything we can to support them and not put them in the the role of having to raise their prices, uh, raise their premiums, basically, in the end, would likely deny coverage for, for thousands of people. So if you call that disastrous, what are you doing to plan for that? Well, we're trying to look at how else you can, within the system, you can find the resources to make up that subsidy. But it's they it's, were seven billion dollars nationally exactly. last year. In a state like Colorado, where we have Tabor, there is no at the scale we would need, there is no immediate opportunity where you could automatically make up those costs. It's possible the president is just driving a hard bargain here to motivate Congress. But if the president's idea is to just let Obamacare fail. And then I suppose start from scratch, might that be an avenue in what appears to be intractable? Again, I hope that the White House doesn't choose this path. That said, if they begin to pull away the federal commitments to the Affordable Care Act without providing any replacement or any way to help states deal with the obvious outcomes, you really are snatching health care away from people. They'll go back to having their only source of health care at an emergency room when they're in an emergent care situation. That's not where we want to go. That's pulling us backwards. We all agree how important it is to control costs. We are a 1,000% focused on how can we provide incentives and, and the appropriate motivation so people take better care of themselves, trying to find ways to help the insurance companies deal with high-cost pools and some of the consequences of the Affordable Care Act. But... The way to improve the system is not dramatically to reduce the federal participation in the program. Not constructive. You say you're 100% focused on... No, I I think I said 1,000%. 1,000% focused on reducing costs. And yet, on the individual market, people in Colorado are looking at a 27% increase on average. We we haven't done, in, in the individual market, the state can't help reduce costs there unless we can do certain things like high-cost pools or reinsurance programs that allow us to address these issues of, you know, a concentration of people with serious medical conditions. A lot of these private insurance programs, they end up with the most unhealthy segments of the population. So what would you propose then? Because I want to say you've been very active nationally on this issue, as active, I think, as on any issue I can recall in your tenure, what would you suggest for those pools of particularly ill people? Right. And there are different states working on different uh, responses to this situation. Some are looking at what are the illnesses that people have, such as hemophilia, that, that become very high cost. So do we find a way to raise money? And it could be through reinsurance, which is basically 
charging a little more insurance from everybody and using that to subsidize those people that go to an insurer and are incredibly expensive. If some people pay more to defray the costs of those who use a lot of health care, doesn't that mean that rates are headed in the wrong direction? This would be all rates. There would be some very small increase in, in what everyone would pay. What you're talking about is a relatively small number of people, and I don't know what the number is in Colorado, what, let's call it 10 people, that cost on an annual basis 4 5 $6 million a year. So if a couple of those, two or three of those people are concentrated with one insurance provider, they can upset the whole cap, Apple card because, you know, again, some of these regions are, have such a f- low number of people that are actually in the private market, it dramatically raises the cost for everyone else. Now, if the entire population of Colorado, everyone who's insured, paid just a little teeny bit, there's such a small number of these high-cost individuals that you could actually take care of it. Now, there was a reinsurance program in the earliest days of Obamacare, and that sunsetted. Are you saying that you'd like to see the federal government bring that back up? And what's the likelihood of that? I'm not sure whether that's the right solution. I think that people were worried six years ago, seven years ago, that this could be an outcome, that we would end up with a concentration of people that had chronic medical conditions, that they would end up in the private market. Because younger, younger, healthy people aren't necessarily buying insurance. Right. And, and the efforts to make sure that everyone bought insurance, the so-called mandate, you know, a lot of people really rebelled against that and wouldn't participate. So these reasons all come together to create a situation where we probably have to revisit whether it's a, a, a high-cost pool or a program of reinsurance, or you're trying to get to the same place. So here you are with these ideas, reinsurance among them. Is anyone listening in Washington to that? I want to point out that Colorado's Republican Senator, Cory Gardner, voted with the Republicans in every iteration of repeal and or replace. I know you've been in touch with him, and so far at least, apparently have failed to sway him <laughs> or he you for that matter. Yeah. I mean, what does this tell us about, I guess, one, your working relationship with Senator Gardner, but in general with Washington? Well, obviously, I'm very disappointed that we couldn't persuade Senator Gardner to really hold out for a better solution. And that's what it is. You know, he, he's a U.S. senator. He makes his own decisions. That being said, roughly 17% of the American people, the last time I uh, saw a poll on a nationwide basis, support what the House bill and, to a large extent, the Senate bill proposed. I mean, that kind of a rollback on people that would have coverage. The challenge, I think, is more political than the will of the people. I think the will of the people are pretty clear that they don't want us to roll back coverage. They do want us to control costs and improve the system. You know, the reason I'm invo- involved in this on a bipartisan basis was I discovered a bunch of Republican governors that felt just exactly the way I did. And I got talking with, you know, Governor John Kasich of Ohio, who is, you know, he has spent a lot of time working on health care. But I guess what I'm asking is, is what good is this work doing? So you found some like-minded Republican governors. So what? Uh, so I that. think what we proposed in letters to Mitch McConnell, in op-eds in the Washington Post, press conference at the National Press Club, where John Kasich and I, and then at one point we've had as, as many as 11 governors signing these various letters, is saying... This should be a bipartisan solution. It should be done with full transparency. We shouldn't be you know, making these difficult decisions and serious compromises in you know, the darkness of a back room. But do you see any evidence that they're being swayed? Yeah, they didn't pass it, did they? Do you take some credit for John McCain's vote? 
Oh, I don't know. I, I do know that he was aware of the letter, uh-huh. and he certainly made a rather impassioned statement that, that we should have a bipartisan solution that wasn't made in the back room. That was something that was in our letter. That being said, I mean, John McCain doesn't need to take direction from governors or anyone. He obviously stood up in a way that few other senators have. I mean, the, the Senate should be the conscience of this country. And for a while there, it looked like maybe it wasn't going to be. It looked like it was going to be held hostage by partisan politics. Let me say that Politico is reporting as we record this that there is a group of 40 representatives in the U.S. House working on what they're calling a stabilization bill, a bipartisan effort in that other chamber. I want to talk about um, Medicaid in the Affordable Care Act because that's been a huge part of this debate simply that Republicans feel Medicaid has expanded too much. They want to give states more control over how to implement it. In Colorado, one in four Coloradans is on Medicaid. And I'd like you to square for me, Governor, Colorado's relatively successful economy and low unemployment rate and its Medicaid roles. Help people understand how those two things are true. So a lot of those people, uh, when you look at the overall Medicaid roles, a large number of the people that were added were children, You've got elderly, you've got people with disabilities. What you're seeing is a lot of people who are working and they can't afford health care. Look at what the cost of private health care is and imagine that you're making 10 bucks an hour. So 10 bucks an hour is roughly $20,000 a year. How many health care plans, if you've got a couple kids, can you go to for less than $1,000 a month? Not too many, right? Without a subsidy, you're going to be out of luck. And even with a huge subsidy, you have a hard time. So all of a sudden, you're asking people to pay 60% of their net income to health care, it's hard to buy food, to pay rent. What I heard, for instance, from Senator Gardner is, yeah, that speaks to the underlying problem of the economy, not to the need to expand Medicaid rolls. It's a deeper issue. Well, certainly there is a, uh, a level of the economy where employers are doing more work with robots. There is an increasing priority placed on technical backgrounds. And a lot of the newer jobs are jobs that were in the hospitality industry or in various other industries, you know, uh, agricultural industry, where they have not been able to give the raises uh, that other industries have been able to do. That doesn't mean those people don't deserve the opportunity to live, right? That doesn't mean they shouldn't have health care. I want to say that Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett has suggested essentially a public option, and that is letting people who can't afford coverage buy into Medicaid at a lower cost, but defraying some of those expenses. What do you think about a public option? There are all kinds of of variations on a public option. One thing we've talked about here is should there be a sliding scale? Medicaid would include those people who are really making so little or, or have sufficient disabilities that they need full compensation, that they can't pay anything towards Medicaid. But then maybe there should be a sliding scale. As people earn more and more money, they pay more and more, a larger and larger percentage of their health care costs. I think the bottom line is you're never going to get your, your economy going full tilt if people aren't healthy. As I said, you've been extraordinarily visible on this issue. This is just a sampling from the past six weeks or so. Two appearances on CNN this appearance at the National Press Club, an op-ed in the Washington Post. And, and I have to ask, I know you're asked this all the time, do you want to hold national office? <laughs> now, I'm not asking the question everyone asks, are you running for president or will you? Uh, you can tell me that if you'd like. But are, I, I'm speaking in terms of desire here. Please speak to your desire. Do you want to run for national office? 
I would not say that's a, a you know a high priority right now. I am attracted to this specific issue because it has so much importance to Colorado, and because my past as the former chair of the National Governors Association, I've got good relationships with a number of Republican governors. This is some place where I saw an issue that was very important to Colorado, very important to the country, and my relationships with all these other governors could make a difference. For a moment to a different topic, and that's marijuana. The U.S. Attorney General has called marijuana as bad as heroin. He's interested in whether there's a link between pot and violent crime. I want to note that a federal delegation came to Colorado just a few weeks ago, I met with your staff and with others. Do you see a link between violent crime and recreational marijuana in Colorado? Or was your staff able to tell them with any certainty that that's just not a, a strong connection here? Well, the data sets I've seen, when you begin to normalize and look at states that have similar populations but didn't legalize recreational marijuana, and you compare them to the criminal activity we've seen here, uh, I don't think there is a direct link. Or if, if there is, it's very, very small. We, when I went and uh, met with Attorney General Sessions several months ago, I guess it would be close to four months ago now, we invited him to come visit. And we really reached out and said, we know we've got problems. And some of these we addressed in this last legislative session. You know, this is one of those situations where we have to continue to improve this system. And do you you have a sense from that meeting with the delegation? And I know you weren't uh, physically there, your, your staff was. Do you have some sense of how the administration will proceed? Is a crackdown coming? What did you take away? Uh, we certainly didn't take away any sense that there was a crackdown coming. But On the other hand, were there any assurances one wasn't coming? No, I don't think so, and I, not that I heard. And when I met with Attorney General Sessions, he was very candid that he doesn't think legalized marijuana makes this country any better. But nothing just, about the more recent meeting with his delegation uh, from the Justice Department seems to have changed the scenario, the outlook that you took away from your meeting with Jeff Sessions. Right. That, that is my, my understanding was there was no threat, but nor was there any reassurance that, that there couldn't be trouble ahead. Is any member of your staff gaming out what a crackdown would look like? A suspension of federal funds or increased law enforcement activity on a federal level in the state. Are you playing through what the consequences could be for Colorado? Well, again, it's hard to imagine. There are so many states, right? Over 60% of the United States population live in a state where either medical or recreational marijuana is legal. It's hard to imagine, but that's what you've heard from the attorney general. Yeah, I never heard him say that he was going to come and crack down. Oh. He, he was very explicit that... He understands his highest priority is meth, cocaine, heroin. As he said, I don't even have enough resources to really address those issues the way they need to be addressed. So he says, you know, recreational marijuana is not going to be my highest priority. Hmm. That being said, but he said something close to, I don't want to do anything that will encourage a single person to begin growing legal marijuana or to begin selling legal marijuana. We've heard a lot of talk recently um, that your lieutenant governor, Donna Lynn, uh, may be considering a run for governor next year to succeed you. She's mentioned that, the possibility. She's mentioned it to you? Uh Uh-huh, yeah, several months ago. What did she she say? She just said that she was uh, wanted to make sure I was okay with it and that she was thinking about, you know, entering the the primary as a candidate to be, you know, to take my place. What did you say? 
Uh, I said you have been one of the best people I've ever worked with, and certainly you have earned the right, if anyone has, is to, if that's something you want to do, you should go and, and do it 100%. So that's your blessing. Would, would it come with your endorsement? You know, when people have asked me all the way along the line, am I endorsing someone? I've said the same thing to everyone. It's not my intention to endorse someone. Someone like Donna Lynn, who is so talented, when she enters, that makes that commitment all the, all the much harder. But, you know, that being said, this is probably the most talented group of people running for governor that anyone's seen in a long time. I mean, it'll be, it'll be fascinating. Governor, thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper, we speak with him regularly at the state capitol. And indeed, his lieutenant governor announced today she's exploring a run for governor. Tomorrow, a Republican view of health care from the U.S. House. We'll hear from Congressman Mike Kaufman. Globally, June was the third hottest on record. And with a changing climate will come changing health. CPR's health reporter John Daly speaks with Mike Lamp. So what changes are most likely to present a health risk? Well, there are three big things here in Colorado. The risk from rising temperatures, declining air quality, and the danger of wildfires. That's according to a new report on the link between climate and health from the Colorado Health Institute. They're an independent, nonpartisan policy group. And what do their numbers tell us about how much Colorado has warmed already? Well, Colorado's average temperature has gone up about two degrees in the past 30 years. That's unusually quick if you look at the historical record. But scientists project average temperatures could rise another five degrees within our lifetimes by 2050. And as that happens, what kind of people tend to be most affected by the heat? Well, that's people with uh, compromised cardiovascular or respiratory or nervous systems. The biggest groups are kids and seniors. Kids have a greater skin surface to weight ratio. That means they absorb more heat than adults. And seniors can't regulate their body temperature as well. Those who are poor are even more vulnerable since some struggle to pay for air conditioning. And how are people with, with say, chronic conditions affected by the heat? Six percent of the population has cardiovascular disease. They have a harder time pumping blood, which is a big part of how the body normalizes temperature. And diabetics, circulatory challenges can mean they struggle to cool their bodies on hot days. Here's Chrissy Esposito with the Colorado Health Institute. It just adds another complex factor into dealing with issues like obesity and asthma that are already problems in the community. And speaking of asthma, 100,000 Colorado kids and nearly 400,000 adults suffer from asthma. They can expect to struggle from declining air quality. That's a result of higher levels of ozone and particles in the air, along with allergens. And along with all of that, Colorado and other states have seen increases in wildfires linked to climate change. So is that another trouble spot? Yeah, for sure. This new report from the Colorado Health Institute notes the state has seen 78 large wildfires, and that's defined as more than 1,000 acres, between 1970 and 2012. But nearly a quarter of them happened in just two years, the drought years from 2010 to 2012. And smoke from those fires degrades air quality. The Colorado Health Institute's Chrissy Esposito says this hits a variety of folks hard, like the groups we were just talking about. Just in the past 30 years, the number of wildfires has really increased, and not only in the number, but just in the severity. So just all those combined, just kind of like a perfect storm for adverse health events. 
The report serves to highlight the effects of climate change on human health, and it spotlights the efforts of federal, state, and local government and other organizations to address it. And how much are public health officials treating this as a priority issue? Well, the American Public Health Association declared this year the year of climate change and health. I spoke with Dr. Georges Benjamin, who's executive director of the nonprofit. He says the issue has been overlooked and that it touches on so many areas. We think that it's by far kind of a sleeper public health issue that no one's thinking about and a major public health threat. Is it controversial to consider climate change and its effects as a public health issue? Well, there was some indication of this earlier this year. The Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had been planning a climate and health summit. And then in January, just before the inauguration, it was canceled without explanation. The American Public Health Association ended up hosting a trimmed down version of the CDC event, but without government involvement. The group's executive director says the issue was much more bipartisan in past years. And how is Colorado responding? The Colorado Health Institute notes that Colorado has adopted a climate change plan. Communities are preparing for extreme weather and developing plans to respond. The state's voters created renewable energy standards more than a decade ago, which was a first in the nation. And when you look at Colorado's electricity mix, renewables rose steadily from 2% that year to roughly 22% now. That is CPR's health reporter John Daly speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp about climate change and health. Now for something of a horror story. Fifty years ago, scientists discovered a sort of zombie disease in northern Colorado. It infected deer, not people. The animals would slowly lose weight, then lose their balance. In the latter stages, the deer would stumble around with a vacant stare as thick saliva dripped from their mouths. Whatever had wrecked their nervous systems would inevitably lead them to starve to death. Scientists named this disorder chronic wasting disease. And today, a half a century later, it has spread well beyond Colorado and decimates wild deer, elk, and moose. Dr. Mark Zabel studies the condition at the CSU Prion Research Center, and he tries to find ways to stop it. He's with us from Fort Collins. Hi, Dr. Zabel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Chronic wasting disease has now reached 24 states and gone into Canada. You've written that northern Colorado and southern Wyoming are indeed the epicenters. I guess, first off, do scientists know how it started 50 years ago? Well, that's a bit of a controversy. Um, I think conventional wisdom from scientists uh, in the area um, assume that it um, jumped a species. So there's a prion disease of uh, sheep called scrapie. And until recently, it was um, conventional wisdom was that it um, jumped species to affect uh, cervid populations. And those cervid populations, as you said, are wild. And uh, so chronic wasting disease became the first uh, prion disease to affect free-ranging wild populations. And that's how it spread. Um, Let me see this. However, cervids are a scientific term to mean deer and elk. And that's correct. Deer, elk, moose, reindeer, caribou. Yeah. Okay. And so it, it jumped to affect them. And you're using this term prion. I've seen it. Prion, prion, I guess. Um, <laughs> just, just like say what a prion is. 
Sure. So a prion is um, basically um, an infectious protein that causes brain diseases uh, similar to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's that also have um, uh, the cause being a uh, a, a protein that misfolds and uh, becomes pathologic. Mm. Uh, in the case of um, uh, chronic wasting disease, um, this is an infectious disease that uh, affects, like I said, wild, free-ranging populations. That's a strange thing to have an infectious disease that isn't uh, a virus or a bacteria, but actually related to a protein. Uh, but you say that this idea that uh, it jumped species and started affecting, as you call them, cervids, uh, that that's a controversial idea. That's not settled science, I guess. That's correct, uh, because, um, you know, until recently, most of the cases that of CWD um, that we know about, um, as you said, could be traced back to uh, Fort Collins area in northern Colorado, southern Wyoming. However, recently, uh, there were cases discovered in, in Europe, in Norway, which have no connection to the cases uh, in uh, the front range of the Rocky Mountains. So um, it is controversial. Um, we've published some research recently that suggests that the protein that misfolds that causes the prion disease, CWD, um, is particularly uh, um, easy to misfold into that infectious pathologic form. So it could be a spontaneous d- disease. Um, however, in Norway, these uh, cases of reindeer and moose that have CWD are also uh, graze on land uh, that are used by sheep, and there are uh, historical cases of scrapie in those areas too. So um, there's two kind of competing ideas. One is that spontaneous disease, and the other is the the jump of the species barrier from sheep to to deer and elk. These are such vivid disease terms. Scrapie sounds like something I'd never want to get, nor would I want to get chronic wasting disease. And the natural question is if it can potentially jump from one species to another, is there any sense that this would affect people, or does this rest with reindeer and elk and deer? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'll just say that there is no epidemiological uh, data. That just means that they've uh, scientists have looked at, for instance, uh, people who hunt deer and elk and eat that uh, venison, that meat, um, have no increased levels of um, human prion diseases that would indicate a jump in in species barrier. Um, So uh, there's, and experimentally, it it does, uh, we've been able to model this um, disease and this species barrier in the laboratory using uh, transgenic mice. And uh, it seems to be fairly difficult to transmit. Um, that doesn't mean it's impossible or it may not happen. Uh, we've known scrapie to exist for um, hundreds of years. It was discovered in the 18th century. Uh, chronic wasting disease, as you said, has um, only been known to be um, around for 50 years, or at least we only detected for 50 years. Um, and there is some experimental evidence to suggest that you can evolve prions in a test tube and um, uh, change the prion strain so that it becomes more likely to misfold a human protein into the prion form. So if you believe that CWD is um, a newer disease and is still evolving on the landscape, um, one could imagine that um, it evolves into a strain that could jump a species barrier to infect humans. We know that happened in the case of mad cow disease and um, in which the prion disease of cattle jumped species and infected a few hundred people in the UK in the late 80s and early 90s. 
Um, so it's not impossible. There's precedent. Um, so what, so is, what, is uh, this, what is this? No, go ahead. What is the spread of chronic wasting disease then? If it hasn't yet, hopefully, ever jump to people what is it what does it mean for herds of deer and and elk like where do we stand right now or is it possible that entire herds could be lost to this well that's a good question and indeed um uh, in some herds in colorado wyoming and now emerging uh um, epidemics in arkansas um, and wisconsin um Prevalence in herds, uh, the percentage of animals that have the disease, are approaching 50%. And when you get to levels of any disease, uh, then affecting half the animals in a population, indeed that can affect um, uh, the herd populations. Um, So, um, you know, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, Wisconsin all uh, depend on the hunting industry um, as a significant portion of their tourism economy. And so, not just uh, uh, this could not just impact the wild populations of of these beautiful animals, but also um, tourism economies in those states. That's right. It's a terrible way to go. It sounds like for the animals, but there are also the interests. The fact that in Colorado, those you know hunting permits and licenses wind up paying for Colorado's Parks and Wildlife Agency. So, in addition to tourism, there's perhaps that aspect of this motivating you. Um, so to, to this idea of, of prions that you study and that there's an entire center at CSU studying, it sounds a bit like a, like an alien life form. Um, and there are other examples, as you say, of, of these kinds of prion diseases. And you are looking at novel ways of reducing the number of prions, perhaps in the environment, eliminating them uh, in total. Uh, one way to do that is, I guess, through fire. Tell me about that. Right. So, um, as you said, uh, you know, since its uh, discovery in uh, Fort Collins in southern Wyoming, CWD has spread to a huge geographical area. Uh, so that um, you know, other mitigation or management strategies uh, become um, impossible to implement. Right. So your options become limited. So that uh, um, one idea would be to uh, explore or capitalize um, opportunistically on controlled burns um, in some of these areas uh, that are prescribed for other reasons, uh, predominantly for wildfire fire mitigation, um, as you said, heard in the last segment, which is a real problem um, nationwide, um, or for habitat restoration, for instance. So I would, uh, and we know um, experimentally that uh, prions are extremely stable, more stable than most other infectious agents. But one thing that will kill them, um, and I say kill, they're not really alive, but <laughs> destroy them, <laughs> would be to incinerate them, right? So we know that that's effective. Uh, controlled burns on, the air, on landscapes probably don't reach the duration or the intensity that incineration would in in um, our laboratory, for instance, or in industrial uh, practices. However, the, the amount of prions that we're talking about on, in the environment are much lower than in the laboratory or, or potentially in, in industry, right? So the idea would be to um, capitalize on these fires to lower the amount of prions in the landscape to stop this, uh, what I call, indirect spread of prions. We know that um, for CWD, direct transmission from animal to animal is probably the most important part 
But we know also that indirect transmission via um, perhaps contaminated plants, feces, soil, or water um, also contribute. So if we can um, break that indirect link, I think we have an opportunity to limit the spread of the diseases in, in these huge geographical areas. CWD, once again, chronic wasting disease, this uh, disease that sort of leaves elk and deer like zombies before it eventually claims their lives. And another solution you're looking to is wild horses. We know that there's an explosion of them in the American West. And how might they help control these mysterious prions in the environment? Right. Well, I, I can't take credit for the idea. I was contacted um, by a couple of ranchers actually in Calif- Northern California that no longer um, uh, kind of uh, assay or, or, or survey for CWD in California. And he's concerned about really wildfires. And uh, yeah, um, as you may be, uh, be aware, uh, the Bureau of Land Management um, is uh, um, caring for these huge populations, tens of thousands of wild horses. And recently, uh, Congress just uh, um, passed a resolution to start euthanizing um, many of these horses that the BLM takes care of. Um, This is really actually based in some sound um, scientific evidence that shows that horses are naturally resistant to these prion diseases. Ah. Um, And and so uh, the idea would be to restore some of these wild horses um, to areas um, endemic for uh, where CWD is present, um, and and um, consume some of the forage that otherwise would be consumed by prion-susceptible animals, the deer, elk, and moose, um, and in that way limit that indirect transmission similar to eliminating it through a controlled burn. That is, the horses would, would not exactly lay waste to the landscape, but uh, dramatically, I think you're positing, reduce the prions in the environment and thus the spread of chronic uh, wasting disease. Uh, Dr. Zabel, I, I wonder if we might wrap up with how you, how you feel about CWD. Does this disease keep you up at night? Does it feel like your nemesis? Well, it does. Um, uh, this is just one component of a number of uh, prion diseases that the uh, Prion Research Center looks at. These oh. include what I call non-classical prion diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, even these uh, cr- um, tra- uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathies or traumatic ba- brain injuries that we see in professional athletes. All are related to a protein misfolding that causes a brain disease. And so um, all of these collections of diseases um, sort of worry me. Um, CWD is, um, of course, in, um, uh, a part of the Colorado landscape, literally and figuratively. And so um, that's why this disease is of particular interest to me. But um, we're working on um, not just management mitigation strategies, but um, therapeutics, diagnostics, um, and potential vaccines, too, to um, uh, treat not just uh, CWD, but other um, prion-like diseases. Fascinating. And so the work on chronic wasting disease might have repercussions well beyond. Dr. Zabel, thank you for being with us and introducing me to the term prion. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Dr. Mark Zabel helps lead the Prion Research Center at Colorado State University, and he spoke to us from Fort Collins about chronic wasting disease, this zombie disease that is depleting deer and elk herds around the country and reindeer herds around the world.
The late Apple co-founder Steve Jobs was known to be emotionally complex. He apparently had a temper. He didn't want to get on his bad side. Kind of an ideal character, wouldn't you say, for an opera? This is from the opening scene of a new opera called The Revolution of Steve Jobs. Its premiere at Santa Fe Opera runs through August 25th. Mark Campbell wrote the libretto, meaning the words that are sung. He graduated from high school in Denver and from CU's theater program. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It occurs to me that Steve Jobs' life was already an opera. Now it's just set to music. Uh, (laughs) Why did he he make a good subject? Um, Because he was such a conflicted man. I would say, you you know, there there was an outer persona of um, someone who's creating these devices that are very slick. There's probably one in your pocket right now or most, you know, in the pockets of, of, of your audience right now. But at the same time, he was a very complicated kind of a messy man um inside and that is what the that's that's what the opera that's how the opera approaches the subject um the dichotomy of this very public figure and then having all these um kind of dark thoughts um that was the story that mason and i decided to tell this is mason bates who's the composer but i understand that when you were initially uh, approached about this project asked to be the librettist you were skeptical I was because I had not um I had the impression that most people have of Steve Jobs as just being this very difficult, impossible man who treated people really poorly. But the more I did my research, starting with the amazing Walter Walter Isaacson book and then just reading everything I can online, the more that I discovered there is a lot more to this man than than um than many of us have in a superficial impression of him. Would you say that there was something that convinced you, like a, a moment, a passage you read? Maybe? There, <laughs> um, there, there were several passages, but um, uh, I will say when I read that Steve Jobs was a Buddhist his entire adult life and that he had a spiritual mentor named Kobun Chino Aragawa, um, it, for me, kind of provided an entrance into this story um, that I'm not sure if I would have... Uh, approached it in the same way once I started reading about this man's influence on Steve Jobs and also a little bit about Buddhism and, and understanding, you know, the um, there's a circular path you often take in meditation also that relates to the Enzo, a, a, a symbol that Japanese, uh, that Buddhist monks draw. Um, it helped me create a story that is indeed circular in nature. The revolution of Steve Jobs is much more about... Um, the way we approach the story, Steve Jobs looks back on the events in his life that formed him, and it's it's motivated by uh, Steve Jobs beginning to acknowledge his own mortality. We're going to talk about the chronology of the opera, indeed, in, in just a bit, but I, I found it fascinating that you couldn't use actual Apple names. 
in the libretto, I guess because of copyright stuff. So you can't um, sing I, w- I wouldn't sing say iPhone? couldn't. Okay. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that we couldn't use them. Um, I made an early decision not to use them because I think that the opera becomes more universal without mentioning product names. Now, it also might have created a legal issue. I, I've been told that it wouldn't. Um, but it was more it, – it kind of elevates the opera instead of um, – by referring to the iPhone as one device in the song you just heard um, – and not identifying like Mac 2 and all of these products, these brilliant products that Apple created, that Steve Jobs helped create and market, uh, it, it just creates a more elevated story without mentioning those names specifically. Right. I can imagine if this had been written, I don't know, 10 years ago and mentioned, you know, the iPod, it would feel in- incredibly out of date <laughs> already. But, you know, Bates, the composer, did use sounds from vintage Apple products, as we'll hear here, like old generations of Mac computers. We are talking about a new opera about Steve Jobs. It is premiering at the opera in Santa Fe. I'm joined by its librettist. I want to say that the male hero character in operas are often tenors, but uh, the singer Edward (laughs) Parks, who plays Steve Jobs in your opera, is a baritone, Uh, a lower, maybe even darker voice tone. Why, Why make the operatic Jobs a baritone? Well, the real Steve Jobs had a had a rather high pitched, uh, a, a rather pinched tenor, um, but we're not trying to create an impersonation here huh. of Steve Jobs. If you've seen photographs of Ed Parks, he doesn't really look like Steve Jobs. We we kind of, you know, put some glasses on him and and um, a black uh, mock turtleneck, not not the real turtleneck that Steve Jobs wore. Um, and Mason made the decision to uh, make Steve Jobs a baritone. Just because I think we were going to be hearing from this guy all night, and um, I, I personally would rather hear a baritone all night <laughs> um, and save the tenor, save the tenor for the big high notes. That's often the story. Um, it's a, it's a really large role, and um, Ed plays it brilliantly. We are so lucky to have. In fact, our entire cast here at Santa Fe Opera has been not only terrific to work with, but they really fill their roles beautifully. Um, and Ed's voice is just a voice you want to listen to for 90 minutes. That's the duration of this opera. It's without an intermission. It moves very quickly. And um, it, I, would, it's, I would describe it more as a lyrical baritone. And he's on stage, I think, mo- for most of the production. Um, have you heard, by the uh, way... The entire production. The entire production. Have you heard from Steve Yeah, Jobs? he never gets... Have you heard from Steve Jobs' family? No, I haven't. Um, I'm assuming that they're fine with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, Mason contacted Lorraine Powell Jobs. I don't think we heard from her or Wozniak. Um, but 
I was trying to figure that out. Like, well, why ha- why aren't they writing back? And the truth is that I think they want to move on with their lives. Uh, and I think they also probably read enough of uh, the materials about this opera to know that we honor not only Steve Jobs, but we really honor Lorene Powell Jobs and the the importance um, the important role she played in his life. I'll say that Wozniak is Steve Wozniak, Apple co-founder. Uh, we said that the opera is not purely chronological. It jumps back and forth in time, and it starts in the garage of the Jobs family home in Los Altos, California, in 1965. Then it's 2007, and Jobs is publicly launching a new product called One Device. And uh, eventually we're back, <laughs> back in that same garage. The year is 73, though, and Jobs' best friend shows him an invention that lets people make free calls. And the friends sing about taking down the big corporations. Only goes to show, only goes to show, only goes to show. All you ever need, all you ever need, all you ever need to take down the corporate goliaths. Take down the Wall Street behemoths. Take down the corporate goliaths. I do want to say that a New York Times critic wrote that you and the composer left out a really important aspect of Jobs' personality, though. That he was, quote, such a jerk. <laughs> what do you think of that? Is he enough of a jerk on stage? Yes, he's very much a jerk. But the person who wrote that, well, never mind. Um, um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I won't finish that thought. It would be impolitic to do so. Um, I will say... That this is our version of Steve Jobs. Everyone has their own version of Steve Jobs. It's always a problem to write an opera about someone who is our, our living memory because we all see Steve Jobs differently. We see Wozniak differently than perhaps Mason and I do. My job was to create a character. In other words, something fictional based on real events. And there are other episodes in this guy's life that I chose not to mention. Um, you know, his bio- biological parents. I just didn't think it was that interesting. Um, and those those are choices that you make. I will say that the audience response to this opera has been the strongest, the most receptive, the most resonant. I've never heard such laughs. I've never heard such applause and such cheering. And I've written over 15 or 16 operas. Um, I've never heard such excitement in the audience uh, than I did on opening night in our second performance. Hmm. And that's the most important thing to me. I won't please everyone with this story, but if I can please the 2,000 or so people that come to this opera every night and are transported by this experience, then I've done my job. The rest are people who can bring up, you know, statistics that I might have uh, missed or got incorrectly. That's not important to me. The story is the important thing. The music is the important thing. And when people hear this music, which they have never heard before in an opera house because it involves electronic yeah. electronic music, um, they are changed, happily changed. I'll say that Seattle Opera, San Francisco Opera, and Santa Fe Opera work together to make the show a reality, and uh, it'll be performed in Seattle in the 2018-2019 season and then in San Francisco the following season, I guess saving his hometown region for last. Why don't we end with just a bit more music Mark Campbell speaking to us about the revolution of Steve Jobs, which is on at the Santa Fe Opera through August 25th.
I was only seeking perfection. You mistaken want for love. You let your ego get the best of you.